Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 58 of Conquering Columbus. Uh, we got a great show lined up for you today. We got to sit down and talk with Zachary Traxler of Traxler Printing. During the episode, we talked with Zach about quite a few things, from how he got involved with screen printing to uh, how he made it through a, kind of a difficult time where he lost a big customer and was concerned about the future of his business. So I think you guys will learn a lot in this episode, and I hope you enjoy it. But before we dive into that, I want to take a moment and remind you all, go ahead and look at whatever podcast app you're listening to this on. Click that subscribe button. It really helps us out, and it'll make sure you guys never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. The last thing we want to do before we get this episode rolling is take a moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with AWH. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you want to find out more about AWH, check out awh.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. For those of you who don't know who they are, the Sundown Group is an Ohio nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout Ohio. More information on the web at sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them is a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. Mike here again, and if you want to be a sponsor of Conquering Columbus and have your message heard by conquerors across the city, please reach out to me at mike at conqueringcolumbus.com. And one last thing before we get this episode rolling, conquerors, we want to hear from you. There will be a quick survey in the show notes of today's episode, and if you guys could fill that out for us, we'd really appreciate it. All right, conquerors, let's get the show on the road. drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost and so like I bet on me any day choosing greatness greatness doesn't choose you you know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to Conquering Columbus. And today on the show, we have Zach Traxler, and Zach is a, a local entrepreneur here and the founder and CEO of Traxler Printing, a local t-shirt printing company here in Columbus, and Traxler Printing offers uh, printing services for custom designs, and you can check their website out at traxlerprinting.com, which will be linked in the show notes. Uh, he also worked in a variety of different roles before founding Traxler Printing in 2015, including as an analyst for Manta and a contractor for Roto Group LLC, and we're really excited to have him on the show today, and welcome to Conquering Columbus, Zach. Thanks. Um, Traxler Printing has actually been around a little bit longer. We founded in 2010, so oh. sorry I missed that. But um, <laughs> yeah, definitely a lot of different jobs since uh, founding and during mm -hmm. it. So that's right. That's right. And you know what I think? I think it was there was um, that Traxler Printing and Traxler Tees used to be under the same roof, yeah. correct? Yes. Yeah. So in 2015, yeah, right around then, we uh, restructured and rebranded the company to Traxler Printing okay. um, because we expanded from just t-shirts to mm -hmm. 700,000 other items. So you, you pretty much nailed it on the head. So one place that we kind of like to kick it off though to kind of set the stage for everybody is take us back to uh, maybe your childhood growing up and then up through college and then we'll begin to talk about your professional career and, and branching off into becoming an entrepreneur. Yeah, absolutely. So I, uh, I actually grew up in Athens, Ohio. Um, I was born in Portsmouth, lived in Kentucky for a little while, Tennessee, 
as a wee pup. Um, and then um, my mom, working in the nonprofit sector, traveled a lot for her job or changed roles. Um, and inevitably, we ended up in, in Athens in, I believe, the early 90s. Um, grew up going to the local schools there, um, which were actually very liberal arts centric. So it's where a lot of my art background comes from, um, aside from my family. My father's an artist and owned a screen printing business from the late 70s into the mid 90s, um, which was Surf Ohio and Kaplan Graphics. Um, and my grandparents were artists. Um, my grandfather is an artist with wood. So if you follow my twin brother, Alex Traxler, he's, he's a craftsman of wood. Um, but I followed my, my, my father, who was a screen printer. So on weekends, we'd come up to Columbus um, and spend time with my father. And that often meant stopping in his shop and helping out or just seeing what was going on or him checking on jobs because they printed for Lazarus stores when they were in business. That was their biggest client. Um, so I really got a passion and kind of like wide-eyed for screen printing and the whole printing process at a very, very young age. Um, but I didn't pursue it. Um, through high school, I dabbled in it a little bit, making fun t-shirts and that kind of stuff, selling them to friends. Um, if you ask anybody that knows me from childhood, I've monetized absolutely every hobby that I've ever had, um, which kind of ruins it for me. Um, but what are some of those other hobbies? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I grew up <laughs> playing soccer. Um, that was a big thing for me. Um, growing up in Southeastern Ohio, there wasn't a ton to do. Um, if you're familiar with Athens, there's about 20,000 townies and then there's about 20 to 30,000 students. Um, and depending on which side of the townie fence you were on, you either hated or loved those students. Um, I was kind of in between, like when the students were around, it was it was a cool place to live and grow up and, and learn about outside cultures. So, um, you know, my, my biggest hobby was soccer, track and field. Um, and then outside of those, it was definitely arts, photography. Um, my dad's actually a professional photographer too, and that's what my major was going to be um, at, at Columbus College of Art and Design. But aside from that, um, Having a like kind of a split family growing up, and my parents not being married, my my father's side of the family was Jewish, and my mom's was kind of Christian Methodist. We didn't really go to church or anything, but all of my friends went to church. So growing up, I went to all kinds of different churches. I think by the time I was 12, I had a copy of every uh, quote unquote Bible that existed, and, and I was like completely curious as to um, why all of the stories were different and why the, all, all of the beliefs were different. So really kind of educating myself on that growing up. Um, and I didn't really create a religion for myself, but I believe in certain things. Um, and that kind of shaped who I am and how I move forward in life, um, not being um, one to kind of follow, be a sheep in the herd and follow whatever the other church was doing, but um, just looking out for you know my best interests and now my family's best interests. So. Yeah, I think that's an interesting concept, especially when it comes to religion, which is something that we probably won't dive too deep into yeah, yeah. on here. But just to talk about, I guess, in a general theory, when you kind of find yourself in a position where you're finding your own way rather than being stuck in a kind of a strict lane, you really do, and it's kind of a similar path that I took in general. I wasn't really brought up in like a religious area, but I just kind of found my own zone based on, on what made sense to me and what I believed and what I didn't. Yeah. And it really made me take things um, for what they are. And I think I understood myself and developed much deeper beliefs than if somebody was pushing them on me or if I was brought up in, you know, a much more structured. Yeah. Kind of. uh, why that's really important to my story, um, which I haven't really spoke about a lot. Um, maybe one article out there that mentions it, but um, my sophomore year in high school, freshman and sophomore year in high school was kind of lost. Uh, my brother, um, he was a minute older than me. I always looked up to growing up. He was, um, I think he was class president. Um, and he had like impeccable grades. I was the opposite. Um, so I actually ended up getting into things I shouldn't have gotten into drinking at a very young age, smoking, um, some other drugs, and then, um, had the opportunity to move to Columbus in 2002, my sophomore year of high school, um, when my mom took a job up here to run an international nonprofit. And, um, Kind of looked at that as like my exit because my my self-religion wasn't working for myself at the time um so I, I figured i would kind of like make a new me move to columbus sophomore year finish out high school and, and figure out what i was going to do for college and kind of clean slate myself but um as any addict knows um you're you're never done being an addict i mean i'm it's many years have passed and i'm still in recovery you know i think about uh where i used to be um regularly and um 
but moving moving to Columbus um, and trying to clean slate myself um, and having my own kind of self religion, um, it sounded like a great idea, but it wasn't. But where it was a great idea was that the friendships that I found when I moved to Columbus and the support network, networks that are in the city are huge. And so um, by my senior year, things were ten times worse than my sophomore year. But because I had created um, quickly a, a large group of friends that kind of understood who I was, where I came from, and then obviously the support of my parents, and then um, you know medical centers like OSU and stuff like that, I was able to get through recovery fairly quickly um, and kind of find my way there, which was which was very important. Um, you know, especially going into college, I was able to avoid a lot of the craziness that's involved in college because I had had already seen most of it in my high school years. So. Yeah, something a person that was pretty close to me who <clears throat> suffered from addiction growing up said to me one time, "You can't mess what you never had," and it really resonated with me. Such a simple phrase, but yeah. throughout the rest of my life, because every day he woke up, he dealt with those same issues, and it never went away, whether you're sober or clean or you right. know. But what I'm interested in hearing about, and you know, Mike and I have talked about this before. There's a lot of studies about how people are able to successfully overcome addiction versus people who constantly just get thrown back into the cycle over and over again. Yeah. I think a lot of people <clears throat> find, you know, salvation, whether it's in religion or ultimately the more I've grown up, the more I feel like it's they find themselves identifying in a group of people or a profession, something that they can take pride in and, and rededicate their life to. Because that, that, that totally pers- that totally ties back into, uh, you know, you know, business is my religion. Um, now that I have two beautiful children and an awesome wife, um, who's also beautiful, um, you know, I would say business and family are my religion, um, and and the order goes family and then business. Now, obviously, um, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, kind of my salvation and all of that craziness was, um, and it always has been my work. My work ethic is, is like I'm I'm nonstop. I mean, my my wife, my employees, my family constantly are like slow down, and I'm like. I run a million miles an hour, and um, I try not to get tunnel vision because that can be devastating. But um, uh, you know, it's it, work is what keeps me going, and the fact that now they have three mouths to feed other than my own—that's certainly worth getting up every single morning and busting ass every single day to get it done. So, yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I was reading an article on uh, how foreign countries handle addiction and uh, and the differences between treatment here in America and treatment in other countries. And I can't, I think it was Portugal had a kind of a unique approach to it where they would take people who were addicted and throw, you know, four or five of them in the same house and give them a business to run. Right. That's a great idea. And say, Hey, you got, you have to, you know, keep this up. This is your jobs. You'll get paid. You'll get, you know, you all live together and you got to run this business. And it, you know, gave them a role, gave them something to look forward to in the day, a purpose, and uh, it seems to be pretty effective. I don't know if anyone out there is listening and can find that study out there. Somewhere. Find it and send it our way. I love. It. I'm an analyst, so I'd love to see the metrics on that. That's huge. That's awesome. You know, and it's it's a weird concept, and we go down this rabbit hole, and I'll probably try to divert it from us here in a second. <laughs> but it it's like it has this, you know, negative um, connotation to it because people only. Their experiences with people who are suffering addiction are always negative, you know, but when yeah. you have someone close to you who goes through it, you see the other aspect of it where it's, you know, it's still that same person that's just fighting through something that nobody could ever describe until they go through it themselves. Right. And it, every country, like Mike said, you know, is trying to approach it differently. And I think as long as you're putting forth an effort, you're not doing it wrong. It's just interesting and, and kind of cool to see how they're slowly turning out new and new approaches to mm-hmm. Uh, develop ways around it but i mean i think it'll be an ever-changing battle both personally and economically and certainly yeah you know, community but to chase that back so you, you mentioned a little bit jumping back into business here uh, you started monetizing hobbies i'm interested how you were able to monetize you know like were you monetizing the soccer you were playing or was it more like the no so i mean and the other thing is like i was a nerd too like like i said my brother was uh kind of i don't know i hate like the na- like naming people jock and stuff like that but he certainly um put himself in that sphere and kudos to him and 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 being uh, I always thought I was better at soccer but him definitely being better at soccer on the Athens soccer team when I moved to Columbus I played for Whetstone and I was an exceptional player um <laughs> and uh, I believe we played Athens and beat them so let's just put that on the record but um 
you know, the uh, I played Magic the Gathering. You know, a lot of people were like, oh, that's the nerdiest card game ever. Well, it's not nerdy when you're, like, flipping, you know, thousands of dollars worth of cards and able to buy the things that you want as a teenager. And then even later in life, before I had my daughter, I got back into Magic, and it was like a side hobby, and I... I was like, huh, how, does, how do I get a wholesale license? And so then I got a wholesale license, and before, like, three months we were up, I made, like, five grand off of just flipping little paper cards that, you know, people hold dear and near to them. Um, but that burns me out on things, you know. So um, aside from that, growing up, my, my, my best friend, Bud A., who, who now owns a trucking company, he's a small business owner, um, you know, we'd work on people's cars. We'd help them shave their door handles. We'd help them put new rims on their cars. And it was, you know, for a 12-pack of beer from their older sibling or it was for cash, you know, whatever it was. Um, so we were always looking for uh, additional sources of revenue without having to go on paper, um, especially as a kid in a small town. It's very hard to find, you know, steady work, um, especially when you just want to party all the time, like the college kids. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, that's you know, it's literally like, you know, I, I own a printing company now, but um, before that, coming up with one shirt for myself to wear, and one of my friends was like, oh, I want one of those. It was instantly monetized. The second I made another one, it wasn't. I wasn't going to do it for free. I'm, I'm a very charitable person now, but I wasn't then. So, um, yeah. So, and then you know, mowing lawns and um, doing backbreaking labor. Luckily, I grew up with my my stepdad, who is a, a framer and carpenter. So I learned a lot of those great skills. I was constantly grounded as a kid. So. Um, grounded and and I guess if some millennials and, and younger people listening out there don't understand what that is it's like you cannot leave the house if you get in trouble you can't talk on the phone there's no internet there's none of that um, and so that forced me to like do labor on on our four acres in Athens which was helping build the addition helping run wiring helping insulate and those are all huge valuable things that I learned as a kid um, that have probably saved me over a hundred thousand dollars as a business owner um, it is different since there's licenses and code involved in, in Columbus, but if it's a small fix, um, you know, it can be easily done if you, if you get your hands dirty and dive into it and know what you're doing. So, um, and I'm, I'm certain that's one of the good reasons why Traxler Printing is so, so successful now is not only how hands-on I am on the, the printing side of the business, but actually keeping it running, um, keeping, keeping the gears oiled, et cetera. So... Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, that, that always led to volunteering time with Habitat Humanity or a friend's dad needed help putting up siding on his house. So I, was, I wasn't going to turn down $10 an hour as a 13, 14 year old kid. So, yeah, definitely. And so, uh, you mentioned tracks of printing. Let's talk a little bit about, um, when you first got involved with screen printing, I know you said your dad earlier was a screen printer. Yeah. So when did you first start really getting um, involved with it? Uh, you know, I, I dabbled in it really young um, in high school um, before they really did away with most of the important liberal arts programs that are uh, pivotal to children's education that they're lacking these days um, was in high school um, I kind of revamped one of my dad's uh, forgotten brands which was Skate Ohio I like to say it came before its time it came out in 88 and the skating rave really hit Ohio in like 89-90 so it was a little bit before the curve on that one but um, when I did a shirt in 2001 I made like 12 for my friends and then before I knew it like 50 people were wearing this atrocious like bright neon pink print on a black shirt that was a hand drawn scan. I mean it was it was looking back it was absolutely terrible, but it was a it was it was a joy to like print it. Um, you know, I'd go down to Skis Teases or the underwear. It's a little dive shop underneath uh Court Court Street in Athens and uh and we do a lot of heat he transfers there. He didn't have screen printing equipment, um, but any chance that I got to kind of get get dirty with ink and, and play with ink, I was I was diving right into it. Um, and even before, I guess when I was like ten, I think we made paper at the local library, which was really cool. And then I instantly wanted to print on it, so I was trying to stick it in an inkjet printer, and that didn't work, so I had to screen print on it. So, um, and then totally avoided it going into college and everything. You know, it wasn't like a it was a printmaking class it wasn't screen printing in an industrial environment I never thought it would get this far as far as what I'm doing today um, uh, so I, I did you know still based media which was photography which was one of my passions but that was also 
at the beginning of the digital photography craze so everybody became a photographer and now that everybody's got iphone 7s everybody's a photographer so <laughs> kind of jump ship from that as quick as i could once i realized it was going to be a uh a true sense of starving artist so yeah i feel like early 2000s early to mid 2000s was like prime time for the neon shirt yeah oh like yeah everybody had one like, oh yeah it comes in cycles i mean two years ago neon came back it went away really quick but uh, <laughs> it makes it makes its appearances every once in a while so. yeah so and you mentioned t- studying uh, photography in school did any of that um well what you studied uh apply well to starting your own business even though you know maybe it wasn't in the photography field, was there anything you learned while you were in college that you well, really... Well, yeah, I mean, actually, it's, it's crazy. Um, photography's darkroom is just like a screen printing darkroom. Um, we have to shoot screens. Instead of taking a negative and creating a positive on paper like you do in photography um, with 35 millimeter medium format, not digital, um, you take a uh, silk screen, which aren't actually made out of silk anymore. It's a nylon mesh, but you take a screen, um, you coat it with a photosensitive emulsion, and then you take a positive image and you shoot the positive into the screen to create the negative and then you print that negative onto a shirt which creates the positive image. So a few extra steps, but a lot of that tied into it. As far as the business side of photography, um, I quickly learned that uh, I wasn't going to be successful at it, so I stopped right away. I didn't just keep digging a big old ditch for myself and investing a lot of time and money and photography equipment. Um, so when, once I kind of came to that realization, I stopped focusing my time on how am I going to foot the bill for a $10,000 body or $10,000, you know, digital body to shoot with all day um, and went back to it being a hobby. And it is today. Um, I honestly, I can't remember the last time I took out my DSLR. I use my iPhone for everything. And I did just speak at a Facebook event about using your iPhone for photography. So I'm kind of like a hypocrite, but um, <laughs> You know, it's just amazing what you can do with technology. Uh, but luckily, I think I made that kind of distinction early on and didn't go down the rabbit hole of something that I may not enjoy later in life because it wasn't going to be as successful as I'd hoped I'd be. So so what did that transition look like from getting out of college and then realizing that you weren't going to pursue that path and branching off and creating your own thing? And, and So I completely didn't do anything related to anything I ever took in college. Um, I actually went into... Uh, back to back to my roots, learning carpentry, finishing work, painting, electrical, um, kind of travel between Columbus, Athens, and Dayton, where my dad lives now, um, and just worked on people's houses. Um, it wasn't ever meant to be a business. I think I did it for like a year-ish. Um, made good money, but I was up on like a 30-foot ladder one day, and I was like, man, if I fell and I'm not insured, this is going to suck. Like... So I got down from that ladder, finished the job, and I was like, I'm going to go get a sales job, which I'm really good at sales. So I I went out and I I started working with AT&T, doing door-to-door campaigns, um, was very good at that, started training a lot of other people. um, And once my time with AT&T was up, um, because of some unrelated issues to our work, there's a a lot of AT&T's U-verse was very not planned well. Um, so I just couldn't hang with all the changes that were coming as fast as they were without knowing what they were going to be. So I went to work for, um, the dispatch before dispatch media group bought them. Um, and I, and I trained their outdoor salespeople to do outdoor sales and collections and then stand in like Kmart and sell newspapers and go to events and sell newspapers. And in the digital era, it's really hard to sell a newspaper. You gotta, you gotta nail your demographic down really well and know what neighborhood you're in and what the sell is gonna be. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about that too. What were some of the things that you were training, whether rather AT and T or Dispatch? That was yeah. So I mean, it was just that you know you've got to res- every door you go to is a potential customer, um, and so it's you know these people have lives. They have no idea that you're about to come up and knock on their door, ring their doorbell. Um, and so you need to respect that. And so one of the biggest things that I train my guys is three no's and go. Um, and then all the other cliche sales things like keep it simple, stupid, and ABCs always be closed and that kind of stuff. But um, I think the biggest thing that I took away from sales was once I got good at the sales and started training people, it was just the hands-on experience of, of training the people. I mean, some of these people, they were just so desperate for a job that they would do anything. And that's what led them to knocking on doors to sell cable or newspapers. And it's like, 
man, that sucks. Like I was that guy, you know, a year earlier. And so, um, just trying to give the people all of the best tools that you can to complete a sale. Um, and then watching them get better and execute at it is very rewarding and fulfilling. Um, because that kind of sales is, it's terrible. I mean, it is defeating, even though they're saying no to the product and not to you. A lot of people get it in their head really quick that, man, is it what I'm wearing? Do I smell bad? Do I look weird? Like, was it my approach? You know? So a lot of people take it personally. They don't last that long. Um, but I think the, the biggest thing that I, I learned from that was how to train people appropriately, how to interview people appropriately. Um, you know, there's a lot of qualifying words in the interview process. It's like, if and when you get the job as, as opposed to when you're working at Trexler Printing, you're going to be, you know, because that makes it sound like they got the job, you know. So just knowing the right verbiage and lingo. Um, but on the sales side of it, I think that just having the interaction with 100 to 200 people a day or uh, even a week if it was a bad week, um, you know, that, that was a lot of training on how to handle um customers that didn't know what they were getting or customers that were just flat out no's. Um, the law of averages was a very important thing to learn that, you know, 20% of the time people are always going to say no. So just walk away. Don't waste your time. Don't piss the person off either, you know, cause they're going to talk to their neighbors and they're going to ruin the experience for you if you have to come back the next day. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I, the, the third biggest thing that I also learned from that is I'm never going to go knock on doors ever again for the rest of my life. So, <laughs> like, no door to door t shirts on, huh? Uh, no, so we do some B2B work, um, but we, we typically do like send out a mailer and tell people we're coming before we just go bombarding people's offices with tchotchkes. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> and at least the, the business people, they usually expect it throughout the day, you know, a little more so than someone, say, knocking on your door at home. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, yeah. maybe not as much anymore. You don't see too many outside sales teams anymore. Yes, yeah, so there's a lot of permitting and stuff now, too. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what we started to run into when we expanded to the Reynoldsburg market and Bexley market is that we had to go through F FBI background checks and you had to get peddler's permits, and those cost money. And if you're not closing sales, you can't buy your permit. So it was, it was a lot of... Uh, <laughs> a lot of background stuff to it that, that also makes it work. So, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, let's see where were we were back. So we kind of got, uh, lost down a rabbit hole there, but back to transitioning <laughs> into starting tracks or printing. We were, you were talking about working at, um, working at, uh, not just AT&T, but then dispatch. Yep. And then, and then the after dispatch. the dispatch, uh, so I met my wife, uh, at the end of my AT&T stand, I met my wife. Um, and then that's when, we moved in together and I got my first ever eviction notice. Um, it was like, just, I wasn't doing enough in sales. I was kind of lazy at the time. Um, and Aaron was nannying for a family. Um, this, um, and the father was, I believe the VP of product development at the time at Manta and, uh, or project manager. I don't remember his title. Um, but she asked, or he asked Aaron one day, he was like, Hey, you're, boyfriend does he have work she's like yeah kind of but he's definitely looking for something more steady he's like well i need an intern and so i went to an interview at manta um similar to this coffee table walked in in like the best ever thrift store suit i could find for five bucks <laughs> <laughs> i think it had like it was like pleated pants and it was terrible double breasted it was a terrible suit um and uh i was so nervous and and mark like was sitting there with his feet kicked up on the conference table and flip-flops and like shorts and was like a Grateful Dead shirt and super laid back. And I was like, oh, Dead shirt. I can totally connect with this guy. And uh, <laughs> like, within shit, like... I wasted this five bucks. <laughs> I know. I was like, damn it, that's $5 in my gas tank. Or I was a smoker at the time, so it was a pack of smokes, whatever. Um, but, you know, the interview went really, really well. He's like, when can you start? And I'm like, right now. And he's like, walk me around the office. Uh, next day I started... Um, and that was actually when Manta was called EC Next. Um, there was like 29 employees. I was there uh, doing like, they had this Q&A question and answer database that like was full of spam. So they needed it cleaned up and they needed somebody from the company side to start responding and getting other users to generate content and start responding as well on the forum to help answer these people's questions. And this was kind of at the advent of claim your business profile online. Um, and so they were kind of trying to roll that product out and a bunch of other products, but a lot of this Q and a form needed cleaned up so that they could actually deliver it and then back 
the community with the question and answer space that was clean and they thought it was going to take a lot longer than it did. I think I had it cleaned up in like two days. They thought it was going to take like three months. And they were like, oh, what are we going to do with Zach next? So then I got into, uh, um, you know, I was a, an intern. I think I, I got the title junior analyst right after that. And then before I knew it, I was, you know, just scouring the site for bugs, um, you know, broken links, broken things, reset your password didn't exist for like a year while I worked there. And I was like, I can't remember my password. So I was constantly running over to the dev team like, hey, can you reset my password? Like, so just finding like normal UX or user interface things that needed kind of shored up and cleaned. And then um, they actually took it, we moved offices uh, to Orion place. And I think by then we had about 50 employees at the company. So it was a growing company. Obviously things were growing really fast. Um, and they took us all out to lunch and they fired us. We were all sitting there like, you're fired. And we're like, what? And they're like, and now you're hired at Manta because they changed the name. So it was like, <laughs> like, oh, something's happening. This is crazy. Um, and then when it became Manta, new office space, new teams, um, I got to work with a lot of different people. I, and because I was predominantly then now like working on bugs on the site, if you had a bug that was found, it got reported to me. And then I kind of worked with you and your team to figure out what priority within your team this bug had. So was it a high bug, like high risk? Do we need to fix this right now? Can we look at it later? Kind of put it on the shelf, whatever. Um, but then because I was working with those teams, I then had to like collectively take all that data and figure out the priority of those bugs for the entire company and then work with the dev team. Um, so I ended up doing a ton of different things. Um, but one of my favorite things that I had to test was this uh, badge product that they had created so you would go and get a bbb membership and you would go get uh, nfib membership or you'd be a member of your local chamber nobody ever predominantly displayed those on their website and there's metrics out there for putting a, a bbb sticker on your front door or a chamber of commerce sticker on your front door and it's something like 60 percent of people that use your business for the first time and referred by a local accredited chamber or bbb are like 80% more likely to reuse their business, your business in the future, and 50% more likely to refer your business as a trusted, you know, place to do business. And so, like, as soon as I started learning about all these metrics of and analytics of little things like stickers and badges on websites and windows, I was like enthralled. So I started diving into numbers much, much more, and that's when I really became an analyst at Manta and trying to figure out how do we link all of these chambers of commerce across the United States to Manta and how do we get all of these businesses that are members proven to get their badge of their local chamber on their acclaimed profile on Manta. Um, and all the time of that, I started learning about other metrics, which are the metrics that tracks their printing prides itself and in the buy local by Ohio mantra. But um, all of those numbers are really, really important because I was also getting to experience um, the conversations firsthand with business owners and like trying to prove that data like is this real like those are really high metrics is this like really work you stick a sticker on your door and you get more business like you pay four hundred dollars for a year for a chamber membership and you get more business and they're like yeah we love it or oh no our chamber's not that diligent or um but and all the while i was learning about these people's passions for their dog grooming business like i could never imagine going into dog grooming no offense to anybody that does thank you i have a dog he's beautiful thanks to you guys um, but you know, like just learning all these different business owners stories and, and why they're passionate about it, why they get up at five o'clock in the morning and they work till midnight, you know, that was like, I want to be one of those people. And that's when the, the wheels really started turning in my head. And that was about a year before I left Manta that I needed to figure out something to do for myself, um, that I would be very, very passionate about and pride myself in my work every day. And I could get up every day and be excited to go to work. So, um, yeah, I don't know if I went off on all little tangent there but that's like my analyst background of um you know just like diving into metrics i love numbers i'm terrible at math really good in excel so thank you microsoft and google sheets <laughs> <laughs> so i think that's a perfect transition though so take me from there to your jump to creating the company and uh, maybe up through where you guys are at today yeah so <clears throat> there was definitely a, a a title shift at manta um i would say August 2010, um, things were things were changing. Departments were changing. People were changing. There was a big investment. Um, there was some turnover. Um, I wasn't part of the turnover, luckily. 
Um, but I just kind of lost my connection with the company and the team that was there and the morale. Um, it was, you know, everything was probably good for that company, but it wasn't for me. And so um, all this time, I'm also planning my wedding with my wife. Um, and so August came around and it's the fall on air fund drive for WCB. And I donate to WCB every year. Um, and I love their t-shirt. And so I'd, I'd show out the hundred bucks or $90 and 50 cents for a t-shirt. And, um, I happened to call in and my, one of my really we good friends, our t-shirt prices. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of my good friends, uh, Eric Nassau is always in the phone bank in there. He's a local musician. And, and I called and I got him and I was like, Eric, what's the shirt look like? And he's like, Oh, you know what? This is piece of paper hanging on the wall. It's like this circle with a Levesque tower and it says, keep it local. And I was like, well, who's printing them? And he's like, you know, I don't know. And so he ended up passing my information off, off to the uh, membership director at the time. And I connected with her and I found out that they actually weren't being printed in Ohio. Um, and that wasn't any, you know, slap to WCB 90.5. They're a nonprofit. So they were looking for the best price possible. And the best price was in California because there's a lot of import export there. A lot of screen printers in California. It's like the largest screen printing market other than Florida and then probably Ohio. Um, and so they, you know, they were just trying to maximize the, the profitability for the organization for their members so they can give them better content. And I was like, you know, you got to print these in Ohio. It says keep it local on it. You know, I'd rather you guys keep the T-shirt and my donation if it's not really coming from an Ohio-based business. And she's like, well, if you've got a better plan, then let's do it. So I uh, built a screen printing press in my basement and then printed 700 <laughs> keep it local shirts uh, in Columbus. Um, and that was, that ended up, that print job ended up coming end of September um, 2010 so September 18th, I got married. September 21st, I filed my LLC. Um, I was still working at Manta full-time, printing in my basement full-time, blowing circuit breakers in my basement. My wife was furious. <laughs> um, so like closer to the end of the year, uh, November, December, she's like, go get a studio. So I went and got a 400-square-foot studio, bought all of my first equipment, moved away from the hand press, quickly filled up said studio. By filled up, I mean if there were two people in the room, one of them would get hit by the press if it swung around as you were, like, swinging the press to put down another color. So we were there for a couple months, and then we moved to uh, 3035 Indianola Nexus Studio 35, and that was our first, like, legit location. Um, and that was March 2011, which was also the month that I quit working at Manta. I had a bonus come in, um, and my second-to-last paycheck, and I was ready to jump ship, and... Luckily, uh, you know, my wife's super supportive. So it went from making a very good salary and benefits and bonuses to a big old question mark. Um, but by, you know, from September to March 2011, we'd already done about forty, fifty thousand $50,000 in revenue out of my basement and studio that I couldn't even like squeeze by a press. And so it was kind of like, all right, this is, uh, this is, this is, this is possible. Um, mm -hmm. And then our first year in our, our first actual loca location, uh, 1,200 square feet. The first half of the building was a retail shopping experience, and you could just look over this half wall and see us printing in the back. Um, you know, that was, uh, I think we did like $80,000 that year, and, and the only two employees were my wife and I, and then we later hired Graham Irwin. Um, she changed her major from dietics to small business finance and administration. I mean, that's how much she supported my dream of owning a business and a screen printing business. Um, so I had really good people on my team and, uh, you know, having Graham right out of college was a huge asset. Not only did he print on his own in college and understood the printing process from start to finish, but he's an amazing designer. Uh, he works for delicious design league now out of Chicago. Um, and he's got a, I'm sure he's got a huge waiting list for, his work is like, like, I can't say it enough. He's an amazing designer and, and artist. So, um, but yeah, that, that whole stint with WCBE also threw me back into my kind of like analyst mode. I was like, we're in Ohio. There are four or five distributors of blank apparel in Ohio. There's Richardson supply on the South side of Columbus that my dad bought supplies at in the seventies. Um, I'm sure I can make a call and somebody will know his name. And it turns out that Mr. Richardson, who's now passed away, lived down the street from the Kaplan's, my dad's side of the family in Worthington area, I believe. Um, and so we just had like a, a good family bond and they were very supportive and helpful on giving me good pricing and terms and stuff like that to start when I was like a nobody. Um, 
So, uh, and they also sold equipment. So we were able to get all of our blanks for our shirts, all of our ink, all of our supplies, all of our equipment from Ohio-based businesses. And when I was at Manta, there was a study that I read uh, as part of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and Shapiro Group, I believe, that, um, and my metrics might be a little bit fuzzy, and I'm sure they've changed since 2007 when the study was taken, um, but it was 62 to 68% of every dollar spent in the state stays in the state, and 42 to 48% of that dollar stays in your local community. That's huge. So not only are we buying all of our, you're spending your money with Traxler, who's in the local community, so you're driving local dollars there. We're spending it in our community and in the state of Ohio. And so you're impacting on like three to four different levels, those metrics, plus all of the jobs that that helps retain. So, um, you know, that multiplier is insane if we can keep it all here in Ohio. Um, and we're looking at that, you know, and kind of the scalability of that across the United States with our business. It can certainly be done in California. It can be done in Texas now. It can be done in New Jersey of all places now. Um, so, uh, you know, that was, a, that was a huge thing for me was we, we launched with zero advertising dollars. Um, but we had a great relationship with WCV, so they launched an ad with us, the whole bio, Traxler Tees at the time, Traxler Tees by Local Bio Ohio, huge. After that hit air, that was our core demographics, business owners, executives, people making 80, 60 to $130,000 a year listen to WCV. So it was our core demographic, and we nailed it on the head on the first try, um, and the business exploded after that. It was screw custom ink, we're going to Traxler. Same, same level of quality, if not higher, and you're supporting the state's economy and, and city's economy like 4X. So that's big. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, the how other states in, you know, in the U.S. is even looking at doing that. And it's funny, you know, um, and I can't, it might have been my high school, like senior economy class, um, but they talked a lot about how unique the United States is and that we could, you know, say in some freak accident we were cut off from the rest of the world but the united states is so diverse and so many different types of economies and things like that with all the states that we would actually be able to survive on our own whereas a lot of countries that thrive on exports would right. not be able to do the same thing but right. because of how unique our, our markets are here and you kind of see that mini economy in effect in ohio where people are uh, you know spending back and forth between your shirts and the suppliers and then um, that money gets it trickles down and kind of everybody if you get everybody spending in Ohio you can really grow something quickly but uh, I guess there's not really a question in all of that um, one thing that I did want to touch on was what does a typical day look like for you today typical day uh, let's start with the morning um, which my day often ends in the morning depending on how late I'm up working um, but with the kids I like to I came to a point about a year ago um, actually should have come to a point about four years ago when I had my daughter uh, but I have a really hard time separating work from home um, so now I have two cell phones and I think like maybe 10 people have my personal phone number and that's the way it's going to stay and so uh, in the morning from whenever my kids get up so between 5 and seven thirty, um, I'm with my kids I don't check email I don't do any work at all um, I just focus on my, my kids and playing with my kids um, and then uh, 7.30, I shake my wife awake, and about 8 o'clock, I roll out the door, and I'm off to the shop. I live exactly one-half mile from my shop, which is great, but if you're a business owner, um, you definitely need time to decompress. So I'm looking forward to – we're house shopping right now, so I'm looking forward to moving a little bit farther away from the shop so I have a little bit of a commute. Um, but I head in the shop. I try to be the first one there every day just because I like to flip on all the lights, turn on all the machines, um, you know, after all, I pay for them, so it's cool to turn them on every day. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so I, I hop in the office, get everything up and running. Um, you know, it's typical check email, check messages, make sure there's no fires to put out, nothing broken or that needs fixed or addressed right away. Um, and then from there, I mean, it's uh, I've gotten to a point now where I can really – start to schedule myself out a bit like I think I'm scheduled out like two to four weeks now for things um, just because of how how crazy it gets July is pretty slow so um, pretty flexible in July but um, you know I try to run out for meetings two to three days a week and I try to keep those kind of in groups so either I'm running out on Tuesdays and Thursdays or I'm running out Tuesday Wednesday Thursday so I can have like my core time in the office with the team and help on the process of continuous improvement um, 
but you know I, I've delegated a lot now recently that my focus right now within the company is spending my lot of time on sales marketing um, just really honing that stuff too um, you know getting into drip campaigns and playing around with abandoned cart emails and fixing messaging and doing videos now we're doing a lot more engaging videos um, so I'm, I'm constantly walking around the shop capturing videos and photos and my employees think it's ridiculous but I, it's time well spent because we get a lot of great interactions with our videos it's a very hands-on process so being able to share that with our customers is huge um, and then aside from that you know I, I, I try to spend a lot of my time thinking of the next big thing in the industry so we've got um, you know like scented inks there's a scented screen printing ink out there most people don't know about it um, but it's really cool so we, we play around with that or we do a lot of R&D we're an R&D facility for our equipment manufacturers, so we test new equipment, new add-ons, and stuff like that. And um, you know, once it's and that that takes me first. I've got to Frankenstein it to the current machine to make sure that it's working and doesn't break everything else. And then once that's done, it's working with the employees to understand what doesn't work with them on an everyday basis or how we can make it better. Um, and then I spend a lot of my time, um, fortunate that my, my step-uncle is Six Sigma double black belt. Um, so I spend a lot of my time working on um, continuous improvement, lean manufacturing, figuring out how we can you know cut movement, um, whether it's paperwork or physical bodies or just how many steps it takes to go get ink, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, or even being prepared. It's, you know, me, I, I noticed that when I wasn't coming in first in the morning and turning on equipment, uh, that, that they'd start printing at 9, 30, 10 o'clock because they'd have to wait for machines to warm up or just to get one of them started or whatever. And so when I get in there at 8 and fire everything up by 8, 30, 9 o'clock, when they come in at 8, 30, 9 o'clock, everything is ready to go. Um, so, and, that, and that's also staging jobs at the end of the day. You know, like before I leave, I'll do a walkthrough and see what they got to, what they didn't get to. Like right now, we're printing into the next week which is huge because two weeks ago we were two days behind so um you know so it's just being able to identify what was happening two weeks ago that's not happening today other than the fact that it's july it's a little bit slow but um you know so trying to figure out what what metrics lie within uh the outputs that our staff give us to make sure that we can just be continually humming along and and cranking it out um but a lot of a lot of my joyful time inside the company uh is is really working with nonprofits and charities and individuals um, that maybe are a part of a nonprofit or charity or have children that have downs or some sort of um, you know medical thing that they could fundraise with they could use apparel to fundraise to get a service dog as a campaign we're working on right now or an occlusion matters campaign with a, with a kid with down syndrome um, to help him raise money for his buddy walk that's coming up in October um, you know I used to donate a lot of my time and money to charities and I don't have that time really or money anymore so what do I do it with I do it with print so um, we just try to increase their margin so that they can get more in return for the t-shirt so or the other tchotchke or whatever we're making for them so what does your team structure look like um and, you know so we do have c-level now um, we restructured the company early last year we kind of went through a, we grew way too fast uh, we moved to our this is now our fifth location we don't have five different locations. This was our fifth move. We have about 15,000 square foot facility, 25 full-time staff now. Uh, when we first moved in, we ramped up with a very large client, two very large clients. Um, one of them went away, and then we didn't recognize that huge you know, impact of revenue because they were net. So after the net dried up that they had, uh, the net receivables dried up, we still were retaining those staff, and that really killed the bottom line. Um, and it was like panic mode and that was one of the one times I did have tunnel vision and it was like how do I get out of this hole and I was just digging a deeper hole um, so finally I asked for help and that was actually bringing my mom Sally Traxler on as an advisor um, and bringing uh, who's now my business partner Connor McClure in as my CFO and him spending his time focusing on renegotiating debt renegotiating vendor contracts me spending my time on valuable sales and like earning legit big contracts like local restaurant chains and stuff like that and then more so the lean manufacturing of things so bringing my uncle tyson in to to take a look at the floor and kind of restructure things and um 
that kind of was also in a slow period. So in the industry, we've got two dips in business, which are right after Christmas and in July. Um, and so a lot of people in the industry will go look for another job in, in, in the slow season. And so I didn't really have to fire anybody or lay anybody off. It was kind of a smooth transition for some of those people to go find another job. But we went from like 32 employees down to 20 um, and then back up to 25 recently. But uh, the structure of our company now after that restructuring is that we've got one production manager that manages the floor, um, but each press has is called a lane. So it's a press that feeds into a dryer that, that at the end of the dryer, there's somebody catching the shirts. And so each lane requires three people to run. So we have one production manager that manages the floor and then each lane manages itself. Um, so they're the ones that pick the jobs or schedule the jobs based on what their press can do and what their team can do. And then there's other departments. So the shipping department has one person in it, shipping and receiving one person in it. Um, I now have an assistant, but everybody cross-trains. So my assistant is also our HR director for human resources. She's also our post-production manager. So because she's in human resources, it's easy for her to bring temps in to finish out a hot market job. So like when we were printing for the Cubs when they won the World Series, it took all of our staff plus 10 temps to get that done in 40 hours. So... Uh, which was like 40,000 shirts in 40 hours, which was insane. Um, and then, you know, there's several other departments. We've got, uh, obviously, design, branding. Um, there's two people that work in that department, our principal designer, Matt Lewis, and then he's got Taylor Hicks, who I went to high school with. He works for him. Um, and then we've got Fritz Fulton in customer service. I'm actually hiring for another customer service person right now to, to help him out because um, I think he fields like 250 phone calls a week by himself, which is insane. Um and then my CFO. Um, so, and then we've got, we've hired out some help too. So we have a bookkeeping service. We've got a CPA, obviously, um, attorneys, they handle all of the other stuff that's not fun to deal with or is fun to deal with depending on what it is. And then we have some outside salespeople. So, um, but you know, it's a very team family-ish kind of environment. I mean, we like to do a lot of things together, go to concerts, go frisbee golfing. We try to break up the monotony of printing the same thing over and over again with um, little bouts of fun and whatnot. Um, but it's, you know, overall, it's a great environment. We've got everybody that's teaching everybody else each other's jobs, not so that they can do each other's jobs, but so they can understand fully, like, why is Ben doing that right now? Well, that's part of the process. That's why Ben is doing that right now. Um, and then if Ben has to step out, that, you know, John can step in and fill for Ben while he's, you know, answering a phone call or whatever. So it's a really cool uh, team structure that we have. But C-levels, there's two of us, and then um, management, and then down to whatever the task is at hand that they're assigned to. So. Yeah, so at that time when you mentioned that uh, you were kind of in a tight spot with one customer leaving, um, and you mentioned bringing on your mom and bringing on a CFO were big, but how did you personally um, find a way? Because I'm sure it was a stressful time for you. So oh, I what, thought the world did, was ending. Yeah. <laughs> and so how did you manage to get yourself through that? Uh, you know, it was, that was like that. That's I, you know, I really had to dig deep. Um, so stepping back a little bit, when we had our daughter four years ago, my wife became a stay-at-home mom. Um, I don't know if it was ever her vision or intention to stay at the company full-time, though she continually offers her help and support. But when she left the company, I did a lot of things with the company that I wanted to do. I'm sure that if Aaron and I were both sitting down at the same table right now four years ago, that we'd have completely different visions of where the company would be. I think that we both wholeheartedly started this business to keep it a small local shop, maybe 10 employees, a couple automatic presses, and then that was that. But I have this grandiose idea of taking like Custom Ink on or, you know, Booster.com, which is owned by Custom Ink, and I own a competitor to them. Um, and it's because a lot of these big shops and then a lot of little fly-by-night shops in people's garages, because our industry is sold as a turnkey industry that anybody can make $60,000 in their garage, is not true. Um, and and so my, my, my kind of mode was always to build this business that got big enough that everybody in Ohio would forget about the custom ink ad and they would think Traxler because they were supporting the local economy. Um, it wasn't necessarily just to beat custom ink. It was because it was local and were higher quality. That was the big thing. It's like, I'm always going to be the one to upsell you on a softer shirt for a promo giveaway. That's 
10, 20 cents extra. And sometimes I'll eat the 10, 20 cents extra on a big run just to prove it to you that a softer shirt is the way to go. You're going to see more people wear it. You're going to get more impressions, etc. Um, but, you know, with the, the whole fiasco of the financial crisis of 2016 at Traxler printing 2015, really, um, it was like, it was the scary, it was probably one of the scariest things that's ever happened to me in my life. I thought I was going to lose everything. Um, and so that's when I was just like, I don't think I slept at all for like three months. Um, but how I got through it was like, it was my wife, you know, I was getting up every single day and seeing my wife and my children and knowing that I had to either figure this out or figure out a way to get it to a point where it could be liquid and sell it, not just for the bottom value of the assets, but to a point where it could be structured enough that somebody would want to come in and buy it. And that was an absolute last resort. Um, I kind of joke with people that come in for tours, which anybody's ever welcome to come in and tour our facility if you're in Columbus or traveling through Columbus. But, um, you know, I, I constantly, when I, part of the tour is that I've kind of timed it to where we walk to the back of the warehouse and I'm like, I'm going to die right there on the floor. I'm going to be in this shop working in my 90s and that's where I'm going to lay to rest right there because it's, you know, other than my family, it's my life. You know, it's the print life for me. So I wouldn't change it for anything. So I think that's an awesome place to kind of start to wrap things up. Um, one of the final questions we always ask people, I think you talked about it a little bit in that answer, but the motto of our show is live uncomfortably and we usually like to ask people kind of what it means to them and how it resonates within their lives. Um, so I'm interested to hear, you know, you, you talked about being uncomfortable, but what you think your most uncomfortable situation was probably, was it what you just described there? Uh, I mean, overall, big picture, that's most certainly um, probably the most uncomfortable I've ever been, especially financially. Um, that was terrifying. The cool thing about my wife is that she wants to live in an RV and travel across the United States, so money is really no object as long as the gas tank is full and we can feed our happy little vegan family vegan food. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm completely comfortable any day, um, and I think that's what kind of drives me. That that sort of, you know, you're bidding on a huge contract, and you never know if the next guy's going to be ten cents lower or ten cents higher. It's very uncomfortable, um, and that's a make or break contract. And so, if it doesn't happen, what's next? That's a very uncomfortable feeling. Um, you know, July is a very uncomfortable month for me because I know everybody's on vacation in July, and so it's like. We're going from rocking and rolling five-figure days to, uh, you know, $100 on a Monday. Like, that would be terrible. Where's the rest of the money going to come in? And then, you know, people check their email on Thursday or Friday on vacation, and they pay their invoice, and it's like, oh, that made up for the whole week. Sweet. So it's just like that roller coaster. I think the biggest thing that, um, yeah, for me is, is just the financial aspect of the business, which is obviously one of the most important things of the business. So, um yeah, it's definitely uh, an uncomfortable feeling, but I'm not really in it for the money. I'm in it to disrupt this industry and, and prove to people that it's A, not easy, and B, quality exists. You just have to find the right people. So. Yeah, and well, Zach, I think that's a great place to end up the show. Uh, we really appreciate your time today. Uh, you have any last words for our, uh, our listeners here? No, uh, like I said and earlier, if you want a tour of Traxler Printing, just uh, give us a shout. We're there Monday through Friday from 10 to 6. Um, we're off 71 and Weber Road on Silver Drive, and uh, we'd be happy to earn your business or let you tug our ear for more information and check it out. All right, guys, yeah, all their info will be in the show notes if you want to check it out. Uh, we appreciate you guys' time. Thanks for listening, and uh, we will talk to you guys next week. If you like that episode, Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, social media. We're all over the place, guys. Share it with your friends. Also want to ask you if you could do us a big favor. Check out that podcast app you're listening to us on and go ahead and click that subscribe button. Again, it really helps us out and it makes sure you guys never miss a single episode of Concrete Columbus. Last thing we want to do before we let you go here is give one last shout out to all of our incredible sponsors. And that starts with AWH. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you want to find out more about AWH, check out awh.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you.
Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. For those of you who don't know who they are, the Sundown Group is an Ohio nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout Ohio. More information on the web at sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them is a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more and check out a free trial at gofmx.com. Mike here again. And if you want to be a sponsor of Conquering Columbus and have your message heard by conquerors across the city, please reach out to me at mike at conqueringcolumbus.com. There will be a quick survey in the show notes of today's episode. And if you guys could fill that out for us, we'd really appreciate it. All right, folks, that's all we got. We'll talk to you next week. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.